0: Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. 2021 has been a big year for trials investigating the benefits of different approaches to rehabilitation for people with shoulder pain. It can be hard, though, keeping up with the latest research, but also to figure out what it all means for your clinical practice. So today we've recruited some help. Professor Lori Mishner is well known to many in the JOSPT community through her teaching, her research and her leadership. She is Professor of Physical Therapy and Director of the Clinical Biomechanics and Orthopaedic Outcomes Research Lab at the University of Southern California. And Professor Mishner is also Vice President of the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy in the United States. Today, Laurie is here to help us walk through the research, explain what it all means, and think about how we might apply it in practice when you're next in the clinic working with folks who have rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Laurie, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm very glad to have you join us on the podcast today and um, I'm excited today because we are going to be delving into two important new randomized control trials and I reckon there are some important messages for musculoskeletal rehab practice and I'm really grateful that you're here because you certainly have a wealth of clinical experience but also research experience in this area and so you are the expert who's going to help us make sense of these trials and i want to clarify up front for the folks listening that we're not going blow by blow through the methods and the results this isn't a journal club talking about the two trials. We will pop a link to the trials in the podcast show notes. And the two trials are the SEXY trial that was published in American Journal of Sports Medicine from our colleagues and friends in Denmark, and the GRASP trial that was published in The Lancet from our friends and colleagues in the UK. Now, what I'd like to get into with you today, Laurie, to start off with is to just take a moment to step through the treatment options for folks who are coming into the clinic with what i think has got a few different names so some people might call it shoulder pain some people might call it rotator cuff tendinopathy some people might call it subacromial pain syndrome there's a few different words here what i'd like to do is to just step through and get you to give us a brief summary of where we're up to with the evidence for some different treatment options so i'm going to quick fire them at you and we'll we'll run through them and then we'll get into the trials so let's start with surgery so subacromial decompression surgery.
1: So the evidence clearly indicates now from the trials that we have that decompression is no better than rehabilitation or exercise therapy for people with rotator cuff related pain subacromial pain tendinopathy. We're not talking about full thickness rotator cuff tears really as the focus of this it's tendinopathy so that's this subacromial decompression
0: answer. Yeah, and I think that's a really good distinction because there is some recent pretty strong evidence to suggest that for folks with a full thickness rotator cuff tear, a repair might, might give them good outcomes in the long term. So that making that distinction between the two patient populations is important. What do we know about corticosteroid injections, Laurie?
1: So, some earlier evidence indicated that maybe corticosteroids have a benefit early on in rehabilitation and actually give them a meaningful improvement, especially in that first maybe four to six weeks. And then later it kind of normalizes out and doesn't seem to have any additional benefit to exercise or even corticosteroid injection alone versus physical therapy. But this GRASP trial has really provided a a bit of a different look in that it seems to indicate that the corticosteroid injection in addition to a single visit or a group of visits, if you will, six visits, that it's not beneficial in addition to those. Um, What I'd like to point out though, it's quite interesting when you look at the graphs, it does show a little bit of benefit of cortical steroid. It just wasn't meaningful and statistically significant. So I'd like to plug, I'm not an interventional person who's giving injections, but I would like people to consider that this could be beneficial to your individual patients sitting in front of you. If they're having issues with pain resolution, that may be helpful for them. But from the overall randomized clinical trial, doesn't seem to be an additional benefit.
0: What about things like pain medication, paracetamol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, those sorts of over-the-counter types of medications?
1: So the clinical guidelines indicate that that can be used in that first line, especially also first line of treatment for patients with this global rotator cuff tendinopathy is the terminology I'll use from here on out instead of slicing the slash slash different names. And so if we think about these tendinopathy people, maybe uh, this wait and see may be beneficial in combination with a bit of rest, a bit of ice, and some anti-inflammatory medication or pain medication.
0: You mentioned wait and see there. So let's pick up on, on wait and see, because I think some people might make the case that you rest, wait and see, just let, it, let the thing resolve and it'll get better on its own.
1: When we think about low back pain, there are clearly some people early on with low back pain, if they give it a go and remain active, that they realistically can decrease their symptoms to, and abolish them with no formal treatment. And I think the same is true with uh, rotator cuff tendinopathy, and we've seen this. But realistically, some people might really need more. Then we've got exercise therapy, which is what
0: we're really focused on in today's podcast. And I am very deliberately using the term exercise therapy and not physiotherapy or physical therapy, because I reckon physiotherapy or physical therapy is the profession. Exercise therapy is the specific treatment here, and I want to really use that very deliberately. Now, we've got two trials, as we mentioned, the SEXY trial and the GRASP trial, and they're essentially testing different approaches to exercise therapy for people with Rotator cuff tendonopathy or shoulder pain. So let's start with the kind of typical quote unquote exercise therapy approach that has, that folks might have read about in the literature, and then we'll get into the specifics of the two trials. So, up to now, what's the evidence for exercise therapy in managing shoulder pain?
1: So, exercise seems to be beneficial to people who present with this rotator cuff tendonopathy, both of these clinical trials. These patients came in with. Either a, an acute or new episode of shoulder pain in the first six months or people in the sex, that was the GRASP trial, and the people in the sexy trial had to have at least three months of pain. Why I want to point that out is I'm kind of going back to the wait and see kind of approach, if you will, and doing something to kind of self-manage. These people likely tried all of that and then presented to the NHS in the case of the GRASP trial or the clinics that were across Denmark for the sexy trial. So they probably, most people probably do try that. They don't wake up and say, oh, I have shoulder pain. Let me call up the physio, the medicine and find out to get an appointment today because my gosh, I need an appointment. Most people try rest, maybe a little bit of medication, maybe a little bit of ice, and then reach out for this exercise. So let's
0: get into the specifics of the exercise programs in the GRASP trial and in the SEXY trial. And I think I'm going to pick up the GRASP trial to start with. Can you just walk us through what the exercise therapy or what the treatment, the interventions were in that trial?
1: They both were very similar with respect to what they did for exercise. They both used a progressive exercise approach in the exercise arm of the GRASP trial versus a one intervention and then sent you home with a home exercise program. that was also similar, but people were on their own to manage their exercise in the grass trial. They were progressive, resistive exercises. And they were focused at the shoulder and focused at the shoulder blade. And sorry, I don't have to say shoulder blade like when I was in the clinic yesterday to my patient. I can say scapula now. So focus both the shoulder and the scapula and also even the exercise that they had them standing and doing different things that also incorporated trunk as well. So both using
0: the typical graded exercise progression approach with a home exercise program combined. And then the distinction in the grasp trial was whether people had one session only with the physio or the PT, or whether they had six face-to-face sessions. That was the only distinction there.
1: Right. So I'd like to if I made a very global statement about the grasp but was really looking at supervised versus home exercise program approach the sexy trial was all face to face supervision with some additional load on the comparator arm let's apply some more load to see if more loading actually gets a better or a better outcome
0: We've got two really interesting clinical questions here and the two trials, while they're both looking at exercise therapy, they're looking at slightly different questions. I think GRASP is looking at the question of, well, how frequently do I really need to see the person with rotator cuff tendinopathy? And perhaps SEXY is looking more at, well, how much dose of exercise therapy is is really important. So let's pick up on the, how frequently do I need to see people? What do you take out of the results of the GRASP trial, given that these two approaches, one session of PT versus six sessions of PT, there really was no difference in in outcomes at the end of the trial?
1: Claire, I'd like to say I really like your summary there. One is dose and the other is frequency of how often should I see them and in a supervised manner. And the bottom line now, the GRASP trial is there's no difference. I can see people one visit, or I can see them for six visits. But as we kind of pointed out starting this podcast off, it's really important to consider that this was a randomized clinical trial with very strict rules. Once you were randomized, this is the treatment you got. And realistically, pragmatically, there may be individuals in each one of those groups that may have benefited from the opposite arm of treatment. So we might talk at the end of how do you decide who those patients are Monday morning.
0: That's a question that I would really like to know the answer to. Before we get there, can we just talk a little bit about, given we've established that it probably doesn't make so much of a difference how frequently we as clinicians see the person face to face, given that we're talking about a pain condition, does this, how do we sort of bring in our concepts of pain and pain neuroscience and uh, and helping patients to understand pain that I think we're pretty good at talking about that approach in low back pain, perhaps. Is that something that we need to bring in more to managing other musculoskeletal, chronic musculoskeletal pain conditions like what we're talking about here with rotator cuff tendinopathy?
1: Yeah, I think that's really important and some patients really need that and other patients may be perfectly suited not to hear that and do really well just using a progressive exercise approach that the GRASP trial used, whether it was home or not. I like questions in my evaluation to ask, now that I've done in my exam, I tell you what I think that you have. I tell you that your prognosis is great. I think you're going to do well. Lots of people that I've seen It looked like you and I've done exercise and done well. So now, what do do you think? Do you think physical therapy is going to help? And if they say no to me, that's the person that I immediately know to myself. I couldn't send them home with the home exercise program. That's telling me I need to have some more interaction to decide what is it that why they think exercise isn't going to be helpful for them. And also, do they expect to recover from this condition? If they don't, probing about why not, and then bringing in is there aspects about psychosocial factors, for example, that are really limiting their ability to recover and this whole pain at science aspect about what is pain coming from and how can they understand that for their individual condition?
0: The word that comes to mind for me here is resilience and talking about I think often we connote resilience with home exercise program and self-management and sort of building this resilience in helping a person build their resilience to kind of manage, self-manage. But I wonder whether resilience also comes into an approach where you might want to see the person a little bit more frequently as well. You're still trying to kind of build that, that resilience and that capacity of, okay, I can see a way through this.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think about these patients who come in and you give them some dose to do and they say, oh, great. But they come back the next time and they go, but I don't know how to increase this. And I don't know if it's safe. And I'm not sure what this pain means. Those to me are the people that then I, if I had a choice of which arm I put them in the GRASP trial, those patients need to be in the supervised. But other patients, I see them and they're doing pretty well they understand how to progress. They have a regular history of exercise. They expect to get better. They understand the exercise I'm giving them. I'd like to just see you back once in three weeks and let's see how you're you're doing. And in the meantime, give me a ring if there's an issue, but otherwise we'll see you back in a couple of weeks. I think that first visit is so critical to sort out which arm do they go in because I know both arms can be effective. Just which arm do I put them in? Supervised or home exercise program.
0: So what's the answer to the million dollar question, Laurie, of how to figure out quickly and and effectively prognosis and who is the person that's going to do well with the one face-to-face visit versus the person who you might want to see a little bit more frequently?
1: This is my clinical experience only, my clinical, I guess I would say expertise as I've been at this a little longer than I'd like to admit. I think asking those critical questions on the first visit about do you think PT is going to be helpful towards the end? Do you buy into this treatment that I've explained to you that my approach is going to be? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm on board. I think this is going to be helpful. Do you think you're going to recover from this condition, which is independent of whether or not PT is going to be helpful? Those two questions I think are critical. I also really think it's helpful to screen for yellow flags on that first visit to understand how that may be in the interplay as far as their prognosis. I know that we ask a lot of times on screening questionnaires, like, do you have been diagnosed with anxiety or depression? They are somewhat helpful, but to me, I really love the Ospro yellow flags. And the reason I love that questionnaire is I can't possibly give 11 parent scales to every patient who walks in the door. That would be my entire initial evaluation. But if I suspect anything with yellow flags, so I don't give it to everyone, but if I suspect anything on that first visit, I'm giving them the 17-item questionnaire, which is really pretty quick and easy for them to answer. So I have a better feeling about, are these things important enough that I'm going to need to address? And then remeasure that maybe in a couple visits, once they understand the condition, et cetera, those things may go away. So I don't keep assuming they have the yellow flags the whole way through the episode of care either.
0: Let's move now. So one of our clinical questions was about how frequently do I need to see the patient? The second clinical question that we framed was about the dose, how much exercise therapy and and how much resistance training, if you like. This is really the question that the SEXY trial is is trying to address. Let's just recap the exercise therapy approach that the SEXY trial was studying.
1: So they also used a progressive resistance exercise approach. They called it strengthening because the intent was that they wanted to strengthen these individuals. Um, I might call it resistance training because that's how we're providing resistance, be it body weight if they were using closed chain or something. But they used a TheraBand approach with providing some resistance with the aim at providing enough dose that they were trying to get at strengthening in those in the muscles that they were um, addressing. And then in the comparator group, people did the exact same thing as that progressive resistance I just described. Then they added even more loads, more exercises that they were doing. And they also monitored them, which I think was really critical. And I look forward to their follow-up analysis of some of these results. They had a monitor on the TheraBand that could understand how much time under tension they had in the TheraBand to understand were they A, really doing the exercise and B, were they really providing loading that seems to be enough tension in the TheraBand that they were exerting. And so let's come to our question
0: of how much dose do you need? How much strength training or how much resistance training is enough?
1: So great question. Like the graphs trial, we ended up with both groups got better, but one treatment wasn't better than the other. So adding more exercise does not seem to provide an additional benefit. So if I tomorrow was a, a newer clinician and I haven't treated a lot of these patients, or I'm struggling with treating some of these patients, I might pull out the protocol from either trial and say, let me follow this recipe a bit, if you will, about what they've done. I'm going to do some progressive strengthening. This was give me a really nice framework to start. I realize I can deviate off and do more or less visits honoring the grass trial approach. I can do a little bit more loading if I feel like the patient needs more loading for their functional tasks that they want to get back to, or I'm not getting the response in the same kind of trajectory that I would expect, like the sexy trial has shown over time. One of the arguments or one of the criticisms that
0: I've seen a bit online about the sexy trial is that it wasn't really adding enough load that it's really not a strengthening trial. What would your response to that criticism be, Laurie?
1: I would agree that you know their approach wasn't framed around, I'm going to measure them handheld dynamometry every week and see that their strength is progressively increasing. So when we think about strengthening, we're increasing their handheld dynamometry, isometric or the isokinetic, but you're expecting to see a greater peak force of some sort or, or work under over time in a, a cross-range motion assessment. Also, I'd expect to see a hypertrophy of the muscle, neither of which they were measuring with respect to saying, I wanna progressively load them so I'm seeing these effects over the time. So I think you might wanna call it a resistance because they designed it as a strengthening, but their outcome wasn't necessarily saying they must have hypertrophy they didn't measure peak force as an improvement, but they didn't see an improvement in that either.
0: Does this all mean that we should chuck out resistance training? There's just, it's just no point doing resistance training or strength training for folks with rotator cuff tendinopathy.
1: No, no, no. We should continue to do resistance training. The question is, how much dose do we need to do a lot of dose to get a bigger effect? The sexy trial seems to indicate no. Do we need to do it always supervised? The grass trial indicates no, but progressive resistive exercise? Yes, yes, yes. What are the benefits of resistance training? If it isn't getting the muscle bigger or getting more peak force, why use strength training or resistance training? However you'd like to frame that. Realistically, we're seeing local changes and central changes that are likely, or we haven't seen them, but we in other trials have shown Exercise can benefit at the local level, improving muscle activation, for example, improving timing of when the muscles act. So when I'm raising my arm, the muscles are appropriately timed enough to be able for a smooth trajectory of motion and pain less, or that we're getting central changes in the brain that are relating to decreased inhibition and greater muscle activation at the local scapular slash rotator cuff level.
0: It's much more about, we've got some central changes going on, we've got some local or peripheral changes going on and we're chasing.
1: I think we're trying to chase the improvement in muscle activation or muscle performance maybe, which may not directly relate to this improvement in strength, pure strength definition, but rather that the muscles improving in its ability to activate. And that may be coming from both centrally or local factors or obviously combination thereof. Let's
0: sum up. So I'm going to return to our two clinical questions to sum up our discussion about these two trials. So we had dose and frequency or frequency first grasp trial and dose. Laurie, what's your 30 second, 60 second message for folks who are going out into the clinic tomorrow? What, what's, what are the key things that you would like folks to consider when they're in the clinic working with people who have got rotator cuff tendinopathy?
1: Progressive resistive exercise is the approach that you should be using. It provides benefits, just how often and how much load are the things that we still struggle with about at an individual patient level. And so how do you monitor that and determine how frequently do I need to see you and how much dose do you need? Getting back to your outcomes of what's important to the patient. Both trials use a SPADY, which is a great measure. In some randomized clinical trials, they're only allowed to use one and only one, and that's how they look at the primary outcome. But you can imagine the patient sitting in front of you, I love a single, sorry, I love a standardized outcome measure that cues patients about various activities, but also asking about the specific things that bother them that they want to do that they can't. And also, is it enough for them? Some kind of anchor. But I'm using progressive resistive exercise. And you can see in, in particular the SEXY trial, I'm thinking of their diagram, you can see that people were improving over time. And you saw the same thing in the grass trial. You can look at those graphs and say, look, I expect to see a pretty big increase in the first two weeks. And if I don't, I start to ask myself, am I on the right track or not? I shouldn't be seeing a flat and say, oh, I hope you should be getting better in four weeks. My message to patients is, In that first two weeks, we should be seeing a good benefit. You should want to come back and see me to get further instruction if you're just at home for two weeks, for example, because we're on the right track. Then how do you tighter after that, how frequently and how much dose to continue to see that continual slope downward improvement in function? And I say downward as an improvement in percent disability. Sorry about that. The other thing I think is critical to patients is that you tell them that information. Listen, I expect this treatment, if it's appropriate for you, that you're going to start to feel better in two weeks and you're going to say to me, my gosh, Lori, thank you so much. I really feel like I'm on the right track. If you're not feeling like that at two weeks, we really need to reassess. Are we doing the right thing? Am I giving you enough of what you need? Setting the expectation and understanding that at two weeks, I'm going to reassess you on these things that are important to you to understand if we're in the right direction.
0: Laurie, these clinical pearls are just wonderful. Thank you so much for making the time to share those clinical pearls, your wealth of research and clinical expertise with the JOSPT community.
1: It's exciting. I love doing this podcast and I hope this is helpful to people on Monday morning.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights.